0: is that whatever I have, whatever I generate, whatever I earn, whatever I save, my savings, my repatriation, my terminal benefits has gone to a hospital that has given me 29,000 babies, that has given me thousands of patients that we have operated and who have healed and who have gone home. I have 1,500 students in my university. 70% of them are women that's powerful that's I have nothing in the bank but oh boy oh boy that bank upstairs is overflowing
1: so welcome back to the podcast with myself Wayne Walker in this episode I'm interviewing Edna Adan Ismail on changing a nation's health care so Edna is a midwife and campaigner and was born in 1937, grew up as a daughter of a prominent doctor within Smileyland. As a child growing up in what was then British Smileyland in the 1940s, her dream was to build her own hospital by the mid-50s. She won a scholarship to study in Britain, but as life as a habit of doing got in the way, and it took over 50 years and all her savings to finally realize her dream in 2002. Edna's mantra of, if I don't do it, then who will, is a principle she's lived by her entire life. She first met her husband when they were both students in England and then went on to marry him as he became the president of Somaliland and we'll dig into that further in the podcast. She also consequently juggled at the high profile role of first lady with together with frontline nursing shifts. So she progressed to be the country's first ever female foreign minister and broke deep rooted taboos of publicly condemning the widespread practice of female genital mutilation or FGM. This originated from a highly personal struggle when, just aged eight, she herself was violently disfigured by FGM, uh, with her grandmother having arranged the procedure. Edna continues to teach and train in the hospital she built, the Edna Aden Maternity and Teaching Hospital that emerged from the rubble of a bloody civil war in 1981. Since then, the hospital has delivered over 29,000 babies and trained hundreds of nurses and midwives. So Edna, welcome to the podcast
0: thank you very much thank you for having me
1: oh it's an absolute pleasure absolute pleasure so uh, and i thought we could do is maybe start by differentiating the history of somalia and somaliland for for listeners that might not be aware and and maybe the the um the attempt at union but the the distinction between between both countries
0: yes well i it's uh, i'd be happy to do that because very few people know uh of the uh, correct history of the Horn of Africa. Uh, In the Horn of Africa, that portion at the end of the bottom of the Red Sea, uh, that horn shaped portion of the continent of Africa, uh, is an area that is inhabited by ethnic Somalis and others. There is French Somaliland, which at the time before independence was La Côte Française des Somalis, inhabited by Somalis and Afars. Next to it was former British Somaliland protectorate. Further to the east of it was La Somalia Italiana, which is one of the three Italian colonies in Africa. Somalia, Eritrea, and Libya were the three Italian colonies. And then there's portions of our people, the Somali people who live within Ethiopian territory and those who live in the north of Kenya, in the Northern Frontier District of Kenya. So there's five Somali inhabited portions uh, in the Horn of Africa. Somaliland, British Somaliland protectorate, as the name implies, uh, was a protectorate had never been colonized. We also hold that place in history where Somaliland became the first fully sovereign independent Somali nation when we became independent on the 26th of June, 1960, at 0, one o'clock in the morning because at eight o'clock in the morning on the 26th of June, the island of Madagascar also became independent. So we share independent state, but we, we still have that seniority of a few hours over that country. Uh, Somalia, uh, Italian Somaliland was still a colony. 52 other countries, in Africa, who today sit in the African Union, were still under colonial rule when British Somaliland became independent on the 26th of June, 1960. And then when Somalia Italiana, a week later became independent from Italy, the first two independent Somali nations, former British Somaliland and former Italian Somalia, attempted a union to bring together all Somali speaking people. That was the initial ambition. That was the hope. And by the way, when Somaliland became, became independent on the 26th of June, and for one year prior to that date, Muhammad Ibrahim Egal was the head of government in Somaliland. He was the politician or the head of government that the British uh, government was preparing for one year as the head of, head of, you know, government. And he was the one to whom the British handed over the reins of government to, at the moment of our independence. So, Mohammed Ibrahim Egal became the very first head of an independent Somali nation, the first president of a fully independent Somali nation. Very important positions in history cannot be wiped out. Independent, following a decree from Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth, who who is here today, thank goodness. Uh, At the moment of independence, the idea was to bring all Somali-speaking people together. Hence, waiting for Italian Somalia, uniting, trying to unite. But because we had language differences, British, English, and Italian. We had two parliaments, the parliament in Somalia and the parliament in Somaliland. Uh, There was a need to have parliamentary decisions in both countries. That never happened. And when the draft act of union that was prepared by British Somaliland was taken to Mogadishu, which became the capital of, was the capital of Italian Somalia, in the future capital of Somali Republic, the document had to be translated. It could not be understood by one side. The English could not be understood by the other side. And an act of union that should have happened never took place. The idea was, we're the same people. We want the same thing. What's a piece of document? What's a piece of paper? We're brothers. We share ethnicity. We share share religion we focused on what we, the similarities that we had, but forgot and did not give the importance to the legality of the union. So to this day, there has never been an act of union. Therefore there has never been a union, a formal union, a legal union. And when Somaliland and Somalia disagreed on how this country, united the two countries should be run, even after moments and years of detente along the way, when the first president of Somaliland, Mohamed Ibrahim Egal, my first husband, who I met as a student at the London School of Economics way back in the early 50s, uh, became a prime minister of the supposedly united Somalia. He was the last democratically elected government. He was ousted by the communist coup d'état of Sierra Barre, which leashed punitive measures against the people of Somaliland, because they wished to go back to the drawing board and review the act of union which now happened punitive measures to the extent that Russian MiG fighters would take off from the airport in Hargeisa only to bomb the city of Hargeisa, killing a quarter of a million of our people, putting in refugees, sending into refugees, camp, uh, camps in Ethiopia and elsewhere, over a million of our people. And after nine cruel years, long years of civil war, when, during which every act of, of cruelty and, and, and horror was leashed against the people of Somaliland. Somaliland ousted the troops of Siad Barre, ousted the troops of Somalia, closed the border where the British had left it as British Somaliland protectorate. And in 1991, we began to rebuild our country. We began to rebuild Somaliland, brought our people back from the diaspora, rebuilt our schools that had been destroyed, our hospitals that had been destroyed, put family members together who had been dispersed and lost to nine years, 10 years of civil war. And that is what brought me back to my country, Somaliland, uh, when I retired from the UN in 1997, but before I I go to what happened after I came back and built the hospital, I'd like the world to know that Somaliland is not separating, is not gaining an independence because we already gained our independence from Britain in 1960, and we are not separating from any country because there has never been a formal union. So when the world is asking us for the approval of our junior partner, Somalia, to give us permission to call ourselves Somaliland, I think the world needs to look back at what democracy is all about, what history and the facts on the ground happen to be. Somalia is Somalia, Somaliland is Somaliland. And the proof is Somaliland has been stable for the past
1: 30 years so i was in the country uh, about four weeks ago in somaliland extremely stable actually and very very peaceful uh, both in Hargeisa and burama and, uh, and 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 in between you know extremely peaceful um and you know it, of note because it, that can't always be said for the same in somalia actually but um, to, to my next question really, and again, this is maybe a bit off script, uh, Edna, but could we just maybe, I was working with the Somali Red Crescent Society uh, whilst I was out in Somaliland. Could you maybe just speak to the inception of the SRCS? Because you were there, if I'm if I'm right in thinking, at the inception of the actual uh, Somali Red Crescent Society.
0: Yes, I, well, I, I, I was proud and privileged uh, to have been a founding member of the Somali Red Crescent Society way back in 1963. Uh, and I happened to have become its first female Secretary General. Uh, we were involved in drafting the Constitution uh, to establish the Red Crescent in Somalia, because by then we, had into, we were into this union with Somalia, and we were based in Mogadishu. Um, and it took us many years we, we met so many, so many obstacles because, you know, the name, Red Cross, Red Crescent, uh, Red Lion, people could not understand. Were we were a lion, were we were a crescent, were we were a cross. Uh, no NGOs had been registered in Somalia before at that time. Uh, who are they? What do they want to do? What do they, you know, are they agents from, you know, the spies, are they, you know, we had to overcome all of that, those. And luckily when my husband was prime minister, In 67, 68, 69, that is the time when we were able to formally register the Somali Red Crescent Association. So I'm I'm very proud. And somewhere in the archives of the Red Crescent and somewhere in Geneva, there's some little document that says that I was awarded a medal for my services and whatever I had done. And, Edna, uh, that's
1: powerful. That's pow- absolutely powerful. I mean, so that brings me on to the, onto the topic of healthcare, really, and just the inception of your desire to be a midwife and to, to pursue midwifery. Where did, where did that come from? And, and, and what age were you when you decided to pursue midwifery?
0: Well, I'm, I'm born to um, a man who was the first Somali, most senior Somali health professional. Someone who's known as the father of healthcare in Somaliland. I'm the daughter of Dr. Adam, or in Somali, Adam Dachter, Adam Doctor. And very often when I want some difficult doors open, I say, I'm the daughter of Adam Doctor, you know. And it opens doors. Somebody who's loved, somebody who is compassionate and who who gave a lot to our people. And I would be going to school in Djibouti, French Somaliland, and going home. To my parents during the summer holidays. And each year I'd be a little bit older and I'd be able to read and write a little bit more. And at the age of 11, 12, during the holidays, what do you do? And, you know, uh, I would follow my father and, and, and see if I could help him. And the fact that uh, at that young age, he would trust me with his most senior patients uh serious patients and if he were to go to a, another hospital or another camp refugee camp he would leave little notes for me and say when i'm gone make sure they treat that little boy make sure they feed that patient make sure they remove and uh, release the catheter in that old man things i could not do but as the boss's daughter, I would go to whoever was supposed to be doing that and say, did you release the capital from that patient? Did you remove the sutures from that old lady? Has that baby been fed? Uh, and I would take it off. And I would follow him around if he were doing dressings and he would give me things to go and clean. Could you go and wash those forceps for me? And uh, could you run over there and get this for me? Or, um, Sometimes we would conspire against my mother because we ran out of bandages and he would say, can you run up to the house and see if your mother has a, a spare bed sheet that she can trust that we can tear up because we need big bandages for this wound. So, you know, I was his, you know, fellow conspirator <laughs> when well, it's coming to talking mummy to mom to give us a sheet or, you know, a pillowcase but also his assistant when he was doing something important. And I admired the way this big man who was the big boss, was kind and polite and compassionate to the sick. And I admired that. And I thought, well, and then I would hear his frustrations and he would say, I wish I had a better pair of scissors. I wish I had a forceps that would, you know, and I would say, well, maybe one day I'll, I'll have the kind of hospital with the kind of equipment and instruments that my father would have liked to use. How I was going to do it, I have no idea. At 11, 12, 13, 14, I, I didn't know. But that's one thing I wish to do. Um, and that's how I also would say, Dad, would you let me do that? And he would say, no, 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 wait a minute. Just learn to do it with your heart. Your hands will learn to do it much later. So that's why I wanted to become a nurse. So I could remove the sutures. So I could give the injection. So I could do the dressing. So I could help this big man. So that's how this passion was born. And then I I sat for exams. I got a scholarship from your, your country, Britain. And I became that experimental animal the very first girl to win a scholarship Uh, and a girl from Aden and myself were sent together to England in 1954 Um, and nursing was all I wanted to do, surgery was all I wanted to do and it's only later that I I became introduced to midwifery and babies and pregnant women and and, and all the, the, the wonderful passionate um, responsibility that midwifery is and how close to nature midwifery brings you. And I know that if I had not done midwifery, I would not have built this hospital. Because Let's it's... talk about
1: that for a second. Let's talk about the hospital. And because it sounds like from an early age, actually, Edna, you had this... Yeah, overwhelming desire to follow in your father's footsteps, but the, the, the dream and the passion grew bigger and bigger over time and, and probably the vision grew bigger and bigger over time. So just, I, I suppose it's a difficult question, but how difficult has it been to build the hospital? How, how much of a journey has it been to, to, to build it, to, to opening it in 2002?
0: Um, well, I need to jump back in history again because this is hospital number two. I was building my first hospital in Mogadishu because Somalia wouldn't give me a license to build a hospital in Somaliland. Siad Bahar wouldn't give me a license to build a hospital in Somaliland. So that first hospital that I was building in Mogadishu took a good chunk of my savings, uh, was then taken over by the warlords, and still is in the hands of warlords. But it was never built and completed. and it, It took a while for me to get over that anger of having lost my first baby. Uh, It's like a mother having a first baby losing it and not knowing if you're ever going to get pregnant again and have another baby to follow the one you lost. Um, And then the years of civil war, that's when I was with the UN, that's when I was with, with the World Health Organization, that's when I was being sent to Afghanistan and Pakistan and Sudan and Morocco and Egypt and Yemen and... I was flying around the country, the world, uh, doing my job, my work, training midwives, uh, examining students in in, in Oman. And that was my passionate years of learning really a lot and teaching a lot. And it's in 1991 when Somaliland separated from Somalia. And I happened to be in Djibouti as the World Health representative in that country that I came to Somaliland and saw Somaliland for the first time after years of civil war and saw how destroyed my country was and how I could not even go to our house because it was no longer there and there were landmines thrown around the place and that's when I said I am going to build it again and I'm going to build it in Somaliland and that's how I recycled my whole life again refocused Just made a a triage of everything I had. What do I do? We have no roads. What do I do with a Mercedes? I don't need it. I need it. I love it. But I can't have it in Samantha. Who's going to maintain it? How am I going to run it? No roads. So what do I need instead? A four-wheel drive car. Recycle. What do I need? You know, things we surround ourselves with. Washing machines and dishwashers and I don't know what. And microwave. Don't have electricity. Tough luck. You don't need it. That's it, end of that story, recycle. So I just recycled everything I had into cold cash, including my life, my, my, my way of life, the way I dress, where I bought, where I, you know, the boutiques and the, you know, the, the fashion and the, and the, you know, the gadgets and the trinkets and the fashions and being there, done that, I had it. And even when I did have it, I was still five foot two and a half. So today I buy my shoes for this, from the market in Hargeisa. I don't have the boots made for me to fit by the cobblers. I'd in the market. They say, oh, $10. They say, oh, $10 is too much, you sold it to me for mine last time. Okay, all right, you know. I bargain to buy a pair of shoes that cost $10. Is that whatever I have, whatever I generate, whatever I earn, whatever I save, my savings, my repatriation, my terminal benefits is gone to a hospital that has given me 29,000 babies, that has given me thousands of patients that we have operated and who have healed and who have gone home. I have 1,500 students in my university. 70% of them are women. That's powerful. I have nothing in the bank, but oh boy, oh boy, that bank upstairs is overflowing. And occasionally we have blood in the blood bank so of the three banks, bank, bank, empty, I'm not gonna keep any bank manager busy counting my money. Don't have any, don't waste my time, your time on me. Upstairs bank, overflowing, so many things, so many wonderful things we've been able to do. The people we get referred from the countryside, women who were brought in you know, wheel, you know, wheelbarrows uh, and a husband pushing them for four kilometers in a wheelbarrow, a woman who's bleeding and the husband collapses. And we save her and we save him too. And then we drive them back in our ambulance that has been donated by Australian Doctors for Africa. Beat that. that that's, there's no bank big enough in the world to hold that.
1: And you know, that's powerful. I that you No,
0: know, I'm talking about it, but I love what I'm doing. And I feel so blessed that I could do it. At 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock until 12 something, we had, were examining a very first bunch of medical students who were doing their mock exams in preparation for their final exams. The first 18 doctors that we would have trained in this hospital, 50, 50 boys and girls, men and women, who will be responsible adults who have been taught and trained and coached to save lives, not kill, not point a gun at a human being and not shoot a person. So that's, that's what the hospital has given me. And, and I, I hope that I can pass this passion on to the next generation because there's so much that needs to be done and there's so much that we can do even with very little. And an old, retired woman can do it. You can do it. Anybody can do it. So use me as a yardstick and beat that. Add to it, build on it. If I've given you the foundation, climb, build, improve, modernize, look for quality.
1: And then could you speak to the utility of the scheme you build, built up within midwifery and nursing? Because I'm, am I right in thinking there was no national nursing and midwifery training scheme until you sort of came along and, and built one, really? So could maybe could I ask you to maybe just unpack the, the inception of that and how you brought that about? Yes, um,
0: when I was building the hospital. Um, I, my idea was that when the was finished, I would advertise and I would need X number of nurses and X number of lab technicians or whatever. And I would just interview them and take the best. I had overlooked the fact that all the health professionals that we had trained in Somaliland and Somalia, the time when we were united with Somalia, had either been killed. They left the country, they were too old. They were injured. There were people who could no longer work. And I thought, who's going to work in my hospital? And that's when, two years before the hospital was open, I started training nurses. The nurses who would work in my hospital, eventually, I I recruited uh, from the young people who I could find, who could read and write. Uh, 306, 308 uh, young women applied, interviewed, did exams, and took the top 40. And by the way, several of those girls who we trained and who had gone to school in refugee camps in neighboring Ethiopia are today medical doctors. And one of them is Dr. Shukri, who's operating right now, uh, who inserts shots into the heads of little children with hydrocephaly. That's, you know, that's, that's, um, and then of course midwifery because that's my passion this is you know this is what i specialized in and we are that referral point that go to a place where things don't work out so well for the baby or the mother where she, mother is too poor she doesn't have the money to afford private clinics she comes to me because no mother is ever turned away uh, we have the equipment we have the expertise we're open to it four hours a day and this kind of a woman is the woman I built the house for, the hospital for, and I live in the hospital for that woman, that kind of a woman who needs a hospital, who has no other options. Whereas this is, you know, this is where her buck stops.
1: you speak to the relationship uh, you have, or indeed had, with your mother and father, and maybe who within your mother and father instilled this sort of ferocious work ethic, Within you.
0: Oh, I um, well, if my mother, bless her heart, had her way, she would have liked to have given birth to a normal daughter. Who didn't rock the boat? Who didn't pick up microphones? Who didn't talk about female genital mutilation and unspeakable topics like that? Uh, who says yes? Don't think. Just do as you're told. Um, Kind woman, generous woman, but she didn't think that working uh, with you know sick people, men and women, following my dad, driving, getting myself arrested by the traffic police, and she didn't think that was the, the right kind of daughter she wanted. Um, instead, uh, well, and of course, when you ask my your know, my mother, uh, she said, "What do you think about?" Your daughter doing this or the other and she'd say i had a crazy husband and he's given me a crazy daughter you know in desperation little did she know that that was the best compliment you could ever give me Uh, my father on the other hand was somebody who had you know bags of tons of energy who was ready to respond to a call at any time you know day or night would pick up his first spoon to eat and he'd be called and he'd put that down and go away for two or three hours. And I admired that. I admired that selfless dedication he had to his work. And then when I trained in England, I was trained by by people who were equally dedicated and and equally um, correct in what they were doing. And I was taught to do things the right way. And it just built on what I had seen my father do it. And I added the professional skills to it. And I was surrounded by people who were doing their best for the sake. It was just a normal thing to do. And this is what I try to pass on to our to our people, to our students, to our, to our staff. You don't do it because somebody's making you do it, uh, because your heart tells you to do it. Because you've been you've been shown how to do it. And you know this is the right way to do it. So just, just do it. Just, you know, don't wait for me to you know, look over your shoulder to make sure that you're doing it the right way. I want to know that you're doing something, I'm sure you're doing it the right way. I don't need to check. So prove to me that I can trust you.
1: Prove mm-hmm. to me
0: that you'll be doing your best. So it's, it's that kind of a worth ethics that, that I, I grew up with, and, I, and I, if I can pass on to others, uh, I feel blessed, because I've been blessed by this, by, by, by that, and that the satisfaction that, that I, I know that I, I have done my best. That's, as best. that's as good as I can do. I've given it my best shot, and I love it. And the more I do, the more I love doing it. And I just want to infect more. And I sometimes, very often, I, 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 I tell people, um, I suffer from a very bad disease that I hope they will never find a cure for. And that, that disease, the name of that disease is, and you see, they're worrying about what's it, what is it? You know, they're, they're worrying about what kind of a disease I have. And I said, the disease that I suffer from is called, I need to fix that. That's the disease I suffer from. I need to fix that. And I want to train you to be the kind of people who go out to fix things. Not to just say, oh, well, I couldn't fix it. Oh, I didn't have time. Oh, I didn't have the instruments for it. But it was not so important. Oh, I got distracted. Needs fixing? Go and fix it and give it your best shot. Yeah, and Somaliland Somali has been leveled to the ground. 95% of Somaliland was leveled to the ground by the war with Somalia levered to the ground you know, with the MiG fighters, with the bombs with in, put into mass graves, civilians executed, horrors committed against my people. And there's a lot that needs fixing. And those of us who have been spared and who are not filling mass graves today have that responsibility to fix what they can fix and what needs fixing. So that, that, that's the message I want to leave my people.
1: And Nick, can we pivot for a second, actually, and just look at something else you were very vocal about, and understandably so, which is FGM. Did you receive pushback, either locally or nationally, when you started to speak out against FGM?
0: Of course. Um, see Talking about... Um, the anatomy of the female body is never easy. Uh, As a health professional, I need to teach anatomy, Uh, but I'm teaching it to health professionals who know biology and who know about the human functions of the human body. But when that is associated with um, a tradition Uh, that is performed on little girls, not because somebody wants to harm the girl, but because someone thinks they're making it, they're making that girl's marriage ability better, her acceptance by the society better. Uh, They call, you know, they, they say purification and you say, don't purify, don't do this, it's never easy. Until such time, as you find, like me, in 1976, the ripe old age of pushing 40, and I had gone through all my life before that, thinking that female circumcision was a religious requirement like male circumcision, I discovered that our religion, my religion, Islam forbids female genital mutilation. So when I started my campaign, it was when I discovered that I had religion on my side. I had health on my side because female genital mutilation damages, kills, is painful, causes hemorrhage, causes infection, causes damage to, the, to that child, physical damage, pain. That's when I became more vocal and I could talk to people in a very respectful way because, you know, they didn't. You know, our, our grandmothers, my grandmother, did not put me through this because she wished to harm me, but because she loved me, and I was born to a family. Its name has to be protected. My marriageability needs to be protected. Our status in the society needs to conform. So that, that was why she, she put me through it. But at age, age eight and nine, when this was being done, I. I rebelled. I hated it. I was in pain. I was in shock. I was bleeding. And it took me to the age of 40 to discover that it should not have been done to me. And that's when I started talking about it. And the message I leave with my people and the way I talk about it is, of course, I know you have all been, you, you have been doing it, but it's a, it's a practice that predates Islam. It predates all the known religions. It's pre-Islamic, it's paganistic. So if we love and respect our religion, Islam, then we should obey it to the full and not damage little girls and not mutilate them to the point with that little girl who we mutilate at age seven or eight or nine, will hopefully when they marry and will hopefully one day conceive and will hopefully give us, will bring you know, to life to, will give birth to that grandchild that we wish her to give us, to give a husband, to give a family, to, to have herself. But if we've damaged that passage of that future baby to the point where that baby is going to be in difficulty coming out to this world delayed to the point where that baby will suffer asphyxia and die or to the point where that child will be born alive but will have suffered brain damage for lack of oxygen because it stayed too long in the passage that it should have come out of then what have we achieved we've destroyed that girl's chances of giving birth to healthy babies We have damaged her for nothing. So let us stop damaging our daughters. So that's the message that I I give. And if you go into the website, we have these messages in Somali, little booklets that explain it in our Somali language that can be understood by any Somali-speaking person in Somaliland or Somalia or Kenya or Ethiopia or elsewhere in diaspora, I think, uh, you know, wherever in the, in the UK, Bristol or London or, or Cardiff or, or Minnesota or Canada, where, the, where you have big chunks of Somalis, can be understood, understood by them. We'll put that
1: in the show notes actually, Edna, no, we'll, we'll put the links in the show notes to, to the website because I think that's, that's really powerful as well.
0: And it's in English and in Somali and it has, it's free of charge and if you, can tra- if you wish to translate it into Arabic or any, or pushto, or whatever, please do so. And if it saves one little girl, that's it. That's, that's, that's all you want. Well, FGM has no place uh, in, in, in the society and people are now beginning to understand and, and it's going down, it's still not totally abolished, but it's it's, it's got a nose down. And with education and with sensitization and with with the support of fathers and with the support of religious leaders, I am appealing through this podcast to all Islamic scholars, please support us to fight female genital mutilation. If you also believe that it is contrary to the teachings of Islam, please support our voice. Please support our campaign. We need you. Little girls need not go through this if our good religion, Islam, does not require it. Thank you,
1: Edna. You have um, had the fortune of meeting some of the world's leading figures, really, um, throughout throughout the, uh, the the past few decades. Indeed, throughout the, throughout the past forty or fifty years um ex-prime minister of the uk you've met the clintons you've met um hundreds of leading figures um could you maybe just speak to in your mind what differentiates some of the leading figures from from other people you meet are there are there certain characteristics that you've noted in 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 world leaders and emanating figures that sort of differentiate them from other people
0: um well i i think for someone to uh to become a leader, to lead nations. Um, Let's let's say, uh, le général de Gaulle, to have led the free French. He had those leadership qualities, otherwise he would not have led them. Um, I've met Her Majesty the Queen, born into it, brought up into it, raised to lead, leading beautifully. Um, the prime minister I met uh, in office when we were guests of, of, on a state visit to, to Great Britain in 1968 was Prime Minister Harold Wilson, um, elected because of some you know, proof of leadership, yes. Um, the other presidents you know, we met was President um, uh, Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, and and his wife Lady Bird, and Vice-President Hubert Humphrey, uh, and his wife Muriel, and and, uh, the Secretary of State at that time Dean Rusk and his wife. So people in that position uh, have a certain education, a certain preparation, have certain skills to listen, have certain skills to they have a wide knowledge of the world. So I don't have to explain to them where Somalia or is. Um, They know what's happening in the world. They're they're up to date. They're very well briefed. And they have invited you. And they're great hosts and hostesses. Uh, And they put young first lady at that time, 29, 30 year old, uh, nurse, midwife, the wife of the prime minister of Somalia, because at that time we were already writing in Somalia. Uh, they put you at ease. They see you're nervous. They see that you are uncomfortable. They see that you're you 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 have not had that that running in period that it takes for you to master something, and they put you you know they put you at ease. They make you, they, it, there's a certain warmth that emanates from them that puts you at ease It does not embarrass you. It makes you feel welcome. And it's a learning process because one day you become in that position where you welcome visitors to your country, where you, and it it, it was a wonderful training for when I became foreign minister of my country, Somaliland. And where I meet delegations who are coming to Somaliland for the first time hearing Somalis, hearing Somalia, hearing the peacekeeping forces in Somalia, not quite knowing the differences between Somalia and Somaliland. That's peaceful. Um, They're afraid, they're worried, their families are worried, because they're going to the Somalis. Uh, That country, that Horn of Africa in Somalia, where you have pirates, where you have Shabab, where you have you know things happening out there peacekeeping forces the marines the american marines have been there they saw that cnn was there they saw it but then you say that's somalia you've come to somaliland where i can drive you an old woman i can drive you through the streets of our we can go and stop in any little shop you want to buy little trinkets or souvenirs i can stop you i can drive you you don't need guns to protect you you're in somaliland you're safe You want to go and see the, you know, the the, the cave paintings in Las Gales, the eight or nine thousand year old, um, you know, old painting, archaeological sites. I drive you, I take you there. We don't need guns. We don't need bodyguards. We don't need the Kalashnikov. Definitely not. So we try to give confidence to our guests. And I hope that same confidence was given to you when you came to Samaniland. You're safe, you're in Somaliland.
1: It certainly was, Edna.
0: Take your own precautions, but once you're in Somaliland, you've no need to worry, you're in Somaliland.
1: It was certainly safe, and I felt very much welcomed, uh, protected, and uh, and actually accepted by the people. So it was it was a real um, honour to 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 be in Somaliland, actually um, teaching, training, and and just integrating within within the within the within the land. So Edna, and, just
0: yeah, and may I interrupt you? And you know why things work in Somaliland and they don't in Somalia? People power. The people of Somaliland wish Somaliland to be safe, wish Somaliland to be stable, wish Somaliland to welcome you, wish that you stay with us or visit us in absolute confidence. In Somalia, next door, they gain from lawlessness. That's why your taxpayers' money is poured into Somalia, supposedly to keep peace. You think if they wanted peace, they would not have got it? in 30 years, no, it's the money-making machine. We want to make peace, give us money. We want to oust terrorists, give us money. That's what gives them the resources that the world gives to Somalia, that, that creates that state of uh, lawlessness because you have your militia, the next one wants his militia bigger than yours. Uh, he gets X amount, the other one wants to have Y amount. Somaliland has demobilized its militia without external resources, without external troops to make it happen because the people wish it to be stable and to be safe. And that's why a, an 84-year-old woman like me can drive through the streets of Somaliland in any town, can drive you to Berbera, to Boroma on my own, just you and me, bring your little child if you want you know, along. Absolutely absolute
1: confidence so Edna you have just alluded to to your age there so 84 years old born on the 8th of September 1937 you show no signs of slowing down could you maybe speak to uh, your perception of retirement and that enduring work ethic beyond beyond the figure beyond the number beyond an age um and, and and could you just maybe just unpack that from your perspective
0: yes well, um, well, age is just a figure. Um, you see, I'm, I'm driven by what needs to be done. And for as long as I can do it, I wish to die with my boots on. And if I can prepare the next generation to take over from me, to look after my hospital, to look after my people, with the same love and dedication that I have shown and taught uh, to them, it'll be a good time for me to retire. Uh, but What I do is my job. What I do is my hobby. What I do is my, what I choose to do. So uh, when people tell me, "When you take a holiday? I say, well, what do you think this is? This is my holiday. Doing something, knowing that I I enjoy doing it, that's it. Okay, but then there are limits. I know my knees, my ankles will soon give up on me. Uh, My brain gave up on me a hundred years ago, but then who listens to brains? but I, there are times when I, 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 I need to take a step back and get out of the hospital and take a breather. I love nature. I love plants. Uh, that's why I'm surrounded by plants. And if you can see them, uh, some greenery there. Um, and I go out to, uh, Camel farm. My uncle has some camels, so I go there and I spend a bit of time with the camels and the little ones, and I see them being, you know, you know following their mom, mothers, and uh, we, uh, we grow things. Uh, I'm trying to grow uh, uh, what is it, uh, figs. I'm growing figs in Somali lands. So I've got a little fig mm. seedlings there in the corner of my, of- of my office. I do things that I love doing and I choose to do and I never had time for before. And if I really want to get away, then I drive two hours to the beach in Berbera and have a beautiful swim. I love swimming, put on my, my snorkels, my goggles and little corals and little fish and the little blue ones and the little striped ones. And I come back, my is my fully charged and um, that's that's what I love doing. And in between, I, I read a lot, I teach, I, uh, I love driving, it relaxes me, I, I, I enjoy driving. I live my life to the fullest. And sometimes I get invited, I travel a lot, I, I spend half my life in airports and 35,000 feet, I just come back from Utah, uh, Salt Lake City, Uh, I love if I can inspire others and if I can tell the world about Somaliland and the people of Somaliland and the needs of Somaliland and the achievements of Somaliland, why not? I do it and I love it.
1: Edna, um, so let's just look back for a second and just maybe ask you a quick question around your first husband, so Mohammed Ibrahim uh, Ingali, was a prominent political leader and headed up the government, as we said, in British Somaliland prior to the, prior to um, a lot of the atrocities, and later served, as you said, as, as the prime minister of Somali, uh, Somalia he, from 1967 to 1969. President of Somaliland uh, later, so he was a big. He was a big proponent and advocate of your work. Um, how did that marriage change you, Edna?
0: Well, I think my work a lot often got in the way. Um, uh, wives of politicians usually don't work in hospitals, don't deliver babies at two o'clock in the morning. Um, I was just a, you know, somebody who had well. We married when I was a nurse, when I was studying nursing, when I had, you know, we, we met when we were both students. He was not a prime minister or a president when we met, he was, a, he was a student at the London School of Economics. So, uh, you know, don't, don't try to throw rank over me. We we're both fellow students. Uh, it was somebody who loved some other men. Uh, they, they He passed on a lot of his passion for our people, for leadership. And how he he gave his life to the people of Somaliland. If I gave my life to health, he gave his life to politics. He's the one who established uh, the Somaliland that we have today. He was elected in 1993, um, three years after, two years after we separated from Somalia. He's responsible for developing the constitution, for establishing the the, the, the Senate, the House of Elders, uh, the Parliament, the political parties um you know the constitution he's the one who is um worked to develop the uh um the referendum of, of 2001 to ask the people of somaliland uh what we should do whether we should go back to somalia or, or what and 95 of our people said no more somalia no he's the one who who really taught our people um Governance, accountability, um, democracy, the, the voice, the, you know, the, the will of the people. And I learned a lot from him, I admired, he, he had a gift of, of, of speaking. Uh, uh, I talk a lot, but he talks sense. Um, but then when he was prime minister, I would be, I, I negotiated that I would two days of a week I'd work at the hospital. Uh, so my two days in the hospital, I, I would go and teach and demonstrate and deliver babies and do whatever and come back, you know, batteries, fully charged. And uh, he said, well, well, what did you do today? Oh, my God, today we fought bedbugs. We, we were you know, incinerating uh, badly infected uh, mattresses and bedclothes and, and, and torching beds and trying to kill the, bu- you know, the eggs of the bugs. And he said... Couldn't you have, couldn't somebody else have done that? Did you have to be the one who, who kills the bed bugs and incinerates? I said, yeah, but they wouldn't have done a good job of it. And you know, he would find that strange that I would want to do that two days a week. Um, anyway, that that's that's who I was. That's who he was. That's what the world was, and we. Uh, we sometimes got in the way we separated, we, you know, we divorced, we married others, and, you know, but then we remained friends. And he's the one in his tenure as president of Somaliland who gave me this land that I have the hospital on. And, um, you know, this story is I could tell you about, you know, when I said, well, I'm, I'm retiring, I work, what do you want to do? Well, I want to come and build a hospital. I said, what? A hospital but don't you get tired of hospitals you, you're retired. you're 60 you're not young anymore and you want to build a hospital and of course my 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 bargain was do you like being the president of a country that has no maternity wards
1: so edna looking at the the hospital itself actually and you know it's your whole mandate really is to improve the health and of the local inhabitants and particularly to reverse the high rate of maternal and infant mortality but Edna what have been some of the biggest challenges to the mission or, and indeed the hospital in your in your mind?
0: Um, well building it is relatively easy when you build something you build a wall for the windows, for the roof, for the, you know, you the floor, within the pipes, you, you, you do it, you see it, you're doing it. And then one day you've done it and you look at it and it's done. It, apart from a little maintenance here and there and a crack here or a you know, chip something here or there, it's done. The biggest challenge is running it. It's running it as a nonprofit. It's running it for poor people. It's maintaining standards. It's training people. It's being accountable to the people. You've promised to give them a hospital. You need to give them a hospital, not just an institution that calls itself a hospital. Standards need to be where you want them to be. Quality of care needs to be where it should be. Compassion and respect for the sick should be there alongside the professional, Medical scientific treatment of the patient, this human life, this human person, so maintaining it, running it, is not easy. But then, along the way, we've built shops. We have shops all along the way in the house on the main road. We rent them, so we give them to the hospital to you know subsidize those who say I don't have any. I have ten shillings, ten dollars. What am I gonna do? Deliver 10% of the baby? We deliver you. And that's the kind of woman i build built up as before. Anyway, um, these are the challenges. The fact that my country's name is Somaliland and people don't know where Somaliland and think we are Somalia. So we don't get the experts that could have come to help us. The teachers I need. And if I can please send a very loud message We teach in English. Our textbooks are in English. I was taught in English. We examine in English. And English is not well taught in the schools. I need English language teachers, not even volunteers. I want to hire them. I want to, I need English language teachers who help me teach my 1,500 students English as English. Ought to be taught, spoken, written, understood. That's a loud message. Don't give me a diamond tiara. Give me an English language teacher. Far more valuable for me. So thank you for putting that in. Um, so these these are the challenges. And then and then to to you know to make things worse. I'm a woman. Why do you want to build a hospital? You're only a woman. How can you build a hospital? Why should you be doing it? Why can't the men do it? Please get the men to do it. But since there's no men wanting to do hospitals, you're stuck with the silly old woman who wants to build one for you. So these are the challenges, but then they're, they're minor. Death is far more permanent. Challenges, ah, little, you know, irritations here and there. I'm used to that.
1: Edna, would you, um, what would you say to many maybe young trainee nurses and doctors listening to the, to the podcast uh, to, to encourage them?
0: Um, aim for the best. And if you can have a hospital in Somaliland built on a once-killing ground in a country where they, you know, the government was, Somalia government was bombing, can build a hospital where we have been able to reduce maternal mortality, to a quarter of the national average, the sky's the limit. You can do it. Just do it well, do it with your conscience, but it needs doing. Not only in Somaliland, but in any developing, developing country. Use Somaliland as an example. and Say, oh, Somaliland could do it. Why not you? Somaliland that is not even politically recognized can do it. Why not you? That's the message. And just do it well and love it. Love what you do. If the day you stop loving it, walk away. Learn another skills and learn another profession. But if you're going to be looking for the sick, looking after the sick, and you're going to be uh if you are all they have, do it with respect and do it with compassion.
1: Edna so just looking for a second at conflict and maybe not the conflict the physical conflict of of war but just conflict in in a department conflict between professionals how do you manage conflict how do you in a way de-escalate conflict because you must have had plenty of conflict situations building a hospital and indeed managing just the day-to-day running of a hospital
0: um, We're building a hospital, when you're not a carpenter, you're not a mason, you're not an architect, you're not an engineer, and you're just a woman, it's not always as easy. But you just do the best you can. You, I mean, you've built houses before, so you know what it entails, but this time you haven't given a contract to somebody. You are the person who is being contracted to yourself to use whatever budget you have that you've brought to, to finish that job that you have started. And you 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 pick up and you go. And I will remain forever grateful to the to the business people of somaliland uh, I have an engineer who was my engineer consultant who was advising me about you know I don't know 12 millimeter steel bars. I don't know there were millimeter steel bars, 12, 14, 6, 8. Uh, but here's somebody whose two sums I delivered way, way, way back in my, you know, in my years in mm-hmm. Mogadishu. And this was his way of saying thank you to me. So I never paid him one round cent, but he was here to advise me and advise my crew what needs to go there, do the quality control for me, say, no way, that's not going to happen like that. It's going to happen this way and that way and that way. Uh, I've had people who give me all their construction equipment the cement mixers and the scaffoldings and, you know, the, the, the wenches and the whatever's and the plastering. I had no equipment. I had all of that free of charge. I had people who were donating say, look, I can't give you anything else, but use my, my tipper truck to get your, your, your sand. Uh, the municipality bulldozed, you know, this was a trash dump, the site was a trash dump. They bulldozed it for me and carted away 32 truckloads of trash from it. Uh, then God sent the rains, and I live on it. Um, people would, you know, look up and say, well, what do you need? I say, oh, I'm running out of, come on, where's cement? And They say, okay, you will have some cement tomorrow. 20 bags of cement, 200 bags of cement, 400 bags of cement. Uh, all the steel that went into my top roof on the third floor, was donated by just one merchant. How blessed can you be? Um, And then I had people to run to when I didn't know something, I I would, you know, I'd I'd say, how do you do that, by the way? And I had the help of the world, I had the help of my people. I had the help of well-wishers who at first were surprised that I wanted to build a hospital, then who saw the hospital grow. And then Hupika became, became, you know, wanted to help me and and help me with support and join the board. Um, The engineer who helped me with is the chair of the board of trustees of my hospital because he's invested his time in it. And if I should kick the bucket tomorrow, there's people like him and others who will make sure that my hospital will remain a nonprofit charity doing the service that we have pledged to do for the generations to come. So that, that's, I, I, it carries my name, but it's uh, the proverbial shoulders of many giants that have made me reach that, and I feel so blessed.
1: So Edna, just, just to finish off the conversation actually, um just a couple of questions really just to finish off um, just one um, question what do you do to relax what's uh, and you've spoken about swimming in the sea uh, but just on a day-to-day basis do you do you read books do you listen to podcasts do you do anything to 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 relax or is it is it pretty much a constant flow of, of work do everything
0: I'm, I'm i'm learning you know about podcasts i'm learning about youtube I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm doing my gardening, my, my growing my plants uh, YouTube. Uh, I was just spraying before you you know, before I joined you, uh, my, my fig trees, because there's ants, there's white ants, and I don't like chemicals, I don't like um, weed killers and stuff like that, I mean, Um uh, Ferment garlic and green pepper leave it for two days in the sun, uh, it ferments, pungent smell, my goodness. And then you put it in one of those little sprayer things and then you spray the stalks of your, your plants and you don't climb. Done. Uh, a little bit of uh, dishwasher and uh, just a teaspoon of dishwasher uh, soap and half a cup of, of you know, methylated spirit and fill it up with, with water and put it in the spray and spray the leaves, um, again, make them shine. This it dispels all the, uh, you know, the insects. Um, doable. so I'm learning. Uh, I love music. I, I sometimes I, I, I listen to, you know, the old songs of my generation, you know, the Frank Sinatra's and the and the Louis Armstrongs and the Ella Fitzgeralds and the uh, Nat King Coles—you know all the artists you don't know about now—and um, I love. I I used to I used to love books, but I don't have much time uh, because I'm reading so many reports, I'm writing so many things, I'm teaching, so I write. Um, but sometimes when I travel, then I put, put in my ears and I listen or I read. Uh, books that I've enjoyed reading, I read them again. Um, so I choose to do what I want to do. And then so, I, oh, I, I you know, in the old days, I, I, you know, I love numismatics. I love stamp collections, philan, you know, philately. I've lost so many good collections of stamps, but the few that I have, I look after. And I love animals. I love nature. I love, you know, love, I. The one thing I miss, and I'm not able to have now, and I, I, I don't miss my, you know, I don't miss not going to a boutique, I don't miss whatever, but I miss not having a pet. Yeah, that I miss. Uh, I love cats. So I had cats, I had lynx, I had a cheetah, way back in my previous reincarnations, uh, I've seen I,
1: pictures of you with your cheetah, with a cheetah, actually a pet cheetah, so I can testify to, 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 to this uh, occurrence.
0: Or a lynx, oh my goodness, it's a beautiful animal, clean, very affectionate. But I live in a hospital, I have newborn babies, I cannot risk having a, an animal that could escape. And heaven forbid, gosh, eat up a newborn baby No way. So that's the one thing I miss a lot. But then if I do go to the countryside and I see animals... And I'm a patron of the uh, um, you know che- uh, cheetah survival uh, uh, sanctuary. Uh, I go there and I stroke one or two. We treat them. Uh, they bring them here for their X-rays. One breaks an arm. They break you know a paw or something, the limb. Uh, next week we're operating on a couple of cheetahs. They're flying in an orthopedic veterinarian to uh, to operate in a corner of our of our hospital. Uh, So we can give the oxygen and then the anesthesia to a cheetah that's going to be operated by a veterinarian being flown in from uh, South Africa. Uh, So uh, they're not totally absent from my life, but they're not in my life, part of my life as they used to be. Uh, But then you give up something for something even more important. So it's my choice. Nobody's put a gun to my head to do it. it's my choice. And the survival of our people is my responsibility, and I need to, to do that to the best of my ability.
1: So, finally, Edna, if we could just maybe get you to speak to a couple of take on points that you'd like to confer to people um, all around the world listening to this around your perspectives on life and, and work.
0: Uh, I'm not worried about my hospital because my staff are well trained. Uh, I don't worry, I will not need to worry. But if I were to go get called to another function elsewhere upstairs, I will worry for the people of Somaliland because my people have been denied their right of recognition of their rightful identity. The people of Somaliland deserve to be known, their voices heard, and their legitimate recognition given. We live within the territory of the former British Somaliland. We have won our independence through legitimate means. Uh, we voluntarily united, tried the unification with neighboring Italian Somalia, which is an Italian colony, different language, different tribes. It didn't work. We withdrew from that union and the world is punishing Somaliland for withdrawing from that failed union. To give you examples, Senegal and Gambia, two sovereign independent nations united and formed Senegambia. English-speaking Gambia, French-speaking Senegal, they united, the union did not work. Six months later, they separated. The world did not punish Senegal for walking out of that union, did not punish Gambia for withdrawing from that union. Gambia became Gambia again, Senegal became Senegal again. The world needs to be using the same yardstick for the failed union between Somalia and Somaliland. Somalia is Somalia. It's a country that has its geographical location, former Italian colony. British Somaliland has its own geographical location, former British Somaliland. We're neighbors. We don't, don't gloat over the miseries of Somalia, but we want Somalia to respect our wish to separate from their union and then at the end of the day even if we wish to reunite with Somalia it does not exist. It's like saying you need to re, re- you know, attach this part of the body to the mincemeat in a hamburger which part? Somalia has splintered into so many fragments within itself that Somaliland that has separated from it 30 years ago cannot become reattached. Somaliland is peaceful, Somaliland is stable, Somaliland is democratic, Somaliland is part of the peace and stability of the Horn and should not be forced to become part of the confusion and the instability portions of the Horn of Africa. The waterways of the Red Sea, the Indian Gulf, Uh, The the Indian Ocean, uh, the Gulf of Aden, the mouth of the Red Sea is a very important commercial waterway that needs to be kept pirate-free and stable like Somaliland is doing. So I'm not worried about the health in Somaliland, there's enough trained people, yes they will build on it, but I'm worried about the stability of the horn if Somaliland, recognition does not come about. Thank you for giving me that chance to speak
1: about
0: le- a country le- that I love very much, Somaliland.
1: Listen, absolute pleasure. Edna, Adam, Ismail, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today and thank you so much for your time. We will put in the show notes all the links that you mentioned within the within the interview and um, we will be sure to, uh, to signpost.
0: And please, my book, to my more book. about Somaliland and about my life, a woman of firsts, uh, my biography. Maybe uh, some people may wish to to see it. A memory. woman of
1: firsts, absolutely. We'll we'll put that in the show notes as well because I'm. Um, it's I I've heard about it and I've read the preface and it sounds like a fantastic read. So we'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you, Thank you Edna. Mm-hmm.